Materials innovation touches everyone's daily life. For example, smartphone technology would not exist without advanced materials like the Gorilla Glass on your phone, or transparent conductors and LEDs that create a touchscreen, the electrode materials that allow us to have safe, high-energy lithium-ion batteries, and semiconductors that make up the processing and memory chips that we have come to depend on on daily life. The light bulb is a symbol of innovation. Thomas Edison didn't invent the incandescent light bulb, but he perfected it through materials innovation, trying hundreds of different materials for filaments before he found one that would be durable, bright, and relatively efficient. Edison also had to innovate in materials to do metal glass seals to maintain the vacuum inside the glass bulb while connecting the circuit. Practical electric light changed the world. Welcome to the IQT podcast. On today's episode, we'll discuss the history of advanced materials, how they're developed today, and what the investing landscape looks like within this industry. I'm your host, Vishal Sandesera, and joining me today are Victoria Chernow and Steve Taub. Victoria is a technology architect on IQT's field technologies team. She has a PhD in material science from Caltech. She's worked as a fellow at ARPA-E before joining InQtel, and she looked at innovations in next generation nuclear energy and engineered biology for energy and materials manufacturing, among other areas. Steve is a partner on our investments team. He's a reformed mechanical engineer, worked in government and industry, has 10 plus years of experience as a corporate venture capitalist before coming to InQtel in 2019, where he focuses on industrial technology, energy, advanced manufacturing, materials, aerospace, autonomous systems, among other things. Vicky and Steve, welcome to today's show. Thanks for being here. Glad yeah, to have thanks you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, happy to be uh, here. So before we begin, I, uh, let's start. Let's let's set the stage with some definitions. I, I imagine a lot of our listeners, like myself, probably don't have too much of a concept or an understanding of what an advanced material even is. We certainly have a, an inclination that they're important and they're probably pretty ubiquitous. But can, can Vicky, can you define for us what an advanced material is? Sure, sure. So uh, we like to quip that Madonna, being the science expert that she is, uh, got it right. We're living in a material world, and the materials that we rely on, as you uh, spoke to at the beginning, um, are advancing at a, a quite an exponential pace. And so the term advanced materials uh, has been in circulation since about the 1950s. Explaining what an advanced material is, uh, we can turn to this uh, Bureau of Mines review from 1987, which basically stated that advanced materials are those that possess novel or unique properties or exhibit greater mechanical, thermal, electrical, optical, chemical properties relative to quote-unquote traditional materials. And so while the specifics really evolve over time of what it means to be advanced, the definition, at least let's say in my book, uh, remains constant for what's an advanced material. Um, and basically remembering that uh, today's conventional materials were yesterday's advanced materials. Um, can also go into perhaps why we should care about advanced materials, but that could also be a separate you know, yeah, piece of you, conversation. I like, I like what you mentioned about conventional, you know, yesterday's advanced materials becoming today's conventional materials. I think uh, at some point in our conversation, we should certainly touch on the adoption curve and somehow, you know, examples of interesting things that might have been, uh, that we take for granted today that perhaps were once considered advanced. Uh, but before we get into that, let me ask you, Vicky, what is it What is it that someone like me or someone like, someone who's listening should even, why, why should we care about advanced materials? How are they really impacting our lives or making a difference or, or making our lives, you know, better in some ways? 
Yeah, sure. So advanced materials uh, provide a lot of opportunities, as you said, to make our lives better. Um, they provide the opportunity to make things more energy efficient, to offer superior performance at lower cost, which is definitely important for a lot of our consumer goods. Um, and kind of from this uh, higher level, uh, perhaps national security aspect, um, they also uh, lessen our dependence on imports of strategic and, and critical materials or minerals. So kind of advancing what we can do with less, advancing what we can do with uh, more uh, ubiquitous or available materials is, is definitely a step in the right direction in, in some sense. Yeah. Sounds like you know, you're I, saying I, it's... I might argue that, um, you know, one, one way where uh, maybe the definition of advanced materials has changed is that, you know, there's a lot bigger focus today on, on sort of the environmental footprint of materials, which, you know, in, in 1987, at least as far as I remember, it wasn't a big, it's nearly as big a deal. Um, and, and actually, I think, you know, advanced materials are going to be a big factor in helping us, you know, build a more sustainable economy, right? Whether that's, you know, materials for solar panels to create renewable energy or, you know, materials to lightweight our cars and have longer range electric vehicle batteries or, um, you know, just a myriad of other things. So it sounds like from what you're both telling me, there's certainly a lot of importance and significance to advanced materials and uh, the impacts that they have to not only me, but certainly our future. Uh, as a population, uh, both strategically as a population of people in this country and also globally. Steve, uh, touching on that, can you t let's talk a little bit about development. Can you tell me, let's start with just where are these things invented or discovered uh, and who's doing the work in that regard? Yeah, I mean, people are inventing advanced materials all over the place. I mean, lots of universities have material science programs and, and materials development labs. Uh, the government does a lot of work in this area, you know, national laboratories, uh, for example. Uh, a lot of big companies do this work as well. Um, uh, you know, whether they're in the, the industrial realm or the electronics or the chemicals and, and uh, you know, even consumer products companies do advanced material research. Um, even in things like healthcare, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of materials innovation going on. Uh, and then finally, you know, which is where kind of Inkutel gets involved, there are startups uh, who are working in the advanced materials realm. Can you tell me a little bit about the process for new material innovation? You know, how does how does how does the research process look? How does sort of the development process look? And uh, how how might it be either familiar or dissimilar from other more conventional uh, disciplines? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, look. I mean, I think there's sort of two ways that people approach this question, right? Some people find a new material, then try to figure out what to do with it, <laughs> and other people have an application and they're looking for a material to make it work or make it better. Um, so, you know, I mean, like graphene, which people might have heard of, right? There's a great example of, you know, some scientists and I, I don't even know where found this new form of carbon uh, that had all sorts of great properties and, and people are still trying to figure out what to do with it um, in a commercial sense. Um, but, you know, at the same time, you know, the people who make things like jet engines, you know, have always been looking for new and better materials to be able to make the engines, you know, more powerful, more fuel efficient, more durable, et cetera. Um, so it kind of comes from both those directions. And, you know, Vicky, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. You've, you've actually done this work. Uh, <laughs> so. Yeah, um, well, I suppose I come from the, the university side of things and uh, a lot of e experimentation, a lot of really hands-on work goes into it. Um, I think kind of to uh, another component of what you said, Steve, is frankly the timeline that it, it takes to develop some of these materials uh, in in these larger companies or in, or even in startups, um, it's highly heuristic or experimental and can take 
years, if not decades, um, to kind of get where, where you want to go. So uh, in some sense, one of the forefronts of the advanced material space uh, will, in our estimation, be um, advancing the, the life cycle or the timelines um, in order to get to something that will really make a difference. So cutting down this time from decades to months, if that's if it's possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to just sort of build on that point about it taking time because that's that is really definitely something I've seen. I mean, so I you know I think of the example of, of like carbon fiber, which you know I think people these days know what carbon fiber is. Um, people probably don't know that they were invented like modern carbon fibers were invented in 1958. Wow, I <laughs> um, know that. Yeah, by Union Carbide actually in Ohio, um, and um, you know. People realized early on that you know they had some uh, some fantastic properties. Um, you know, they're really strong, they're really lightweight, they're also really expensive. Um, and, you know, I mean, in the, in the late 60s, Rolls-Royce tried to commercialize them to make jet engine components. Didn't go so well, it actually bankrupted Rolls-Royce. Uh, <laughs> so uh, that, that was uh, not a pretty story. But, you know, at the same time, uh, in, the, in the 70s, people figured out, hey, you know, we can make sporting goods with this stuff. You know, fishing rods, golf clubs, uh, skis, bicycles, tennis rackets. Um, and that actually took off. Um, yeah, I don't think that's what the Union Carbide guys had in mind when they invented the stuff. Uh, you know, but around the same time, actually, you also had, you know, in the 70s, you started to have, um, you know, like fighter jets being built with carbon fiber composites. And then, you know, 15 years behind them, roughly, you had the commercial jets uh, starting to be built with carbon fiber, which, you know, they had to sort of prove out the performance and, and drive down the cost to make that viable. Uh, so, you know, here we are, uh, literally, you know, 60 years in from the invention of carbon fibers. And it's, you know, we still haven't completely, uh, we still think of them as advanced <laughs> and we still haven't completely, you know, developed the market for them, right? I mean, I think the next frontier might be might be automobiles. We're already starting to see a little bit of that. Yeah, it seems like the possibilities are endless. Today's jet engine, tomorrow's fishing rod. Earlier in our conversation, we talked about uh, this, this concept of the time continuum, yesterday's advanced materials being today's conventional materials. Do either of you have another, you know, we talked about graphene. Do you have any other examples uh, of, of things that are so pervasive in our life that maybe we've taken for granted that, that in fact started out perhaps not having a, an entire application dedicated to them at, at the onset, but in fact was an advanced material that is, that is important to us today? Um, well, I mean, you know, if I can quote the movie, The Graduate, plastics, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, you go back to the, like the 1920s with the first, you know, Bakelite and phenolic resins. Um, and now we've got, you know, literally tens of thousands of plastics that are used in everything that we can think of, right? That's right. There's actually also a giant island in the ocean that's made of plastic now, I hear. Yeah, that unfortunately. is Unfortunately. Unfortunately. That's, that's, and, that's a great example of how the development never stops, right? Now people are trying to figure out, well, how do we make plastics that are going to biodegrade so that we don't have this problem in the future? Yeah, right. the evolution of, a, of an advanced material. You're, it's, a good thing to, it's a good thing to think about. Um, Vicky, we, we've, we've talked about the history. We've talked about definition. I think, I think we have a good sense of sort of the foundational uh, knowledge we need to have this next part of the conversation which is let's dig into the types, you know, just general broad-based categories of advanced materials. I know that you spent a lot of time thinking through and have uh, a lot of experience with the different types. Could you first start by maybe just categorizing or binning sort of the big, broad uh, sort of, you know, types of, of advanced materials that, that are even important to consider? Uh, Vishal, that is um, a great and daunting task because <laughs> the potential landscape is just so incredibly vast. Um, and on top of that, having these like consistent hard definitions or classifications is, you know, difficult, if not kind of impossible to produce. 
But uh, for our purposes, uh, we could potentially categorize them um, using sort of like a dual track approach. So one of those categories can live along what are the physical or chemical characteristics of this material, and namely something along the lines of, is it a metal? Uh, is it a, a polymer or a plastic, as uh, Steve mentioned? Is it a ceramic, like the material uh, that your coffee cup is made out of, or Alternatively, the material that most of our high-temperature gas turbine uh, blades are coated with. Um, on the flip side, we can also categorize in terms of what is the application or the functionality that the material displays. And this in itself is also a really extensive list, and it, it can span from things like what are the surface properties of the materials, like can it prevent things like corrosion, um, does it have electronic properties? Like, is it conductive? Is it insulating? Um, does it have magnetic properties? Uh, does it have mechanical properties like higher strength, higher toughness, um, super lightweight? So, yeah, I'd say uh, definitionally we can either think what is a thing literally made out of or what is the application that it's used for and then kind of span between those two sections in terms of... Um, how do we, what is the appropriate, appropriate material for the particular application that we want? Because at the end of the day, there are things like plastics that have electronic properties, which kind of crazy to think about, but yeah, totally, is. totally. Well, I mean, it's almost a matrix, right? You have sort of, mm -hmm. uh, you know, types of materials, you know, ceramics and polymers and proteins and along yeah. one axis, and you've got applications along the other. And I mean, there's all kinds of surprising stuff. Like, you know, Vicky and I have been chatting offline uh, the last few days about like people who are building satellites out of wood. <laughs> so people come up with surprising so, combinations sometimes. It really is. Uh, Steve, I wanted to, I wanted, I wanted to, I know that you're going to lead us through part of the conversation around, uh, you know, where, where the investment activity is taking place. But before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit about demand. It's something that you and Vicky are, are bringing to attention is simply that, you know, you've got this matrix way of thinking about advanced materials by material or by function. Where is it that the demand is seen? You know, what is it that, you know, I, I imagine that uh, a lot of the supply follows the demand in this scenario, especially given the sort of long time, uh, you know, development cycles and the costs associated with this. Where is it that you both have seen uh, a lot of the demand come from on the on the function side, at least? So you mean like what kind of functions are people looking for? Yeah. What, what kinds of functions perhaps lend themselves really well to, you know, someone considering maybe I should look at the materials uh, innovation scene to address this this uh, this function or, or instead of relying on things that are currently in the market, maybe I need to innovate and the way I innovate is by doing materials innovation. In some sense, it comes from everywhere, <laughs> but um, I mean, I think there's a lot of demand for uh, materials. You know, there's a lot of demand still for materials with structural properties, um, right? Just uh, we're always looking to make things stronger and lighter and, and more durable and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of demand for electrical, uh, electromagnetic properties, I'd say, right? Electricity, magnetism. Um, that's a, another pretty big area. Um, uh, I don't know, what else? Vicky, you must have. Yeah, yeah. I'd say I say that there are some like high level trends that kind of motivate the search for new advanced materials. And, and part of that is, as Steve sort of mentioned, the desire for consumers and companies to be more eco conscious or sustainable uh, in the materials that they're looking at. So definitely innovating around the need to mitigate climate change is a, is a huge thing that's motivating the evolution of a lot of a lot of these materials but also kind of looking more recently at our uh, at our history right managing the impacts of covid-19 has also led to some interesting innovations uh, along the lines of 
what materials are out there that um, are antiviral um, and and you know how do we develop those things into the products that we that we use and this kind of I'd say goes uh, very much beyond like the antibacterial sprays and Clorox wipes that we kind of uh, traditionally think of. It's you know the application of copper nanoparticles into things. It's the application of new kind of um, protein structures into like material surfaces. So, uh, and, and also I'd say like the, the big data machine learning trends that are ubiquitous, um, in a lot of industries, uh, are also very much impacting the materials, advanced materials landscape. So on, uh, this, uh, reminds me of a question I have for either of you, uh, on the production side, do advanced materials tend to be Certainly, certainly we're motivated by the idea that an advanced material in its application might be better uh, for the environment, might be better, better, more efficient, might be, you know, greener. But what about on the production side? Is it is it safe to say or safe to assume that an advanced material is also safer on the environment uh, or, or, you know, on a global scale on the production side? Or do these tend to sort of vary in terms of how healthy it is for us to even develop these in the first place? I mean, I guess I'd, I'd say I'd say it varies, um, you know, I, it, but I guess the good news is that, you know, People are are considering that as part of the decision making process now, right? It's it's uh, you know something that people start to think about from the beginning rather than an afterthought of once I've already decided on a, a material, I have to figure out how to make it without you know polluting the world. One other thing I think we're seeing as a demand driver is actually is national security. Um, you know, I mean the U.S. is you know we're a big country, we have lots of resources, but we import an awful lot of our raw materials. Um, you know, all kinds of minerals. Uh, you know, steel. Uh, you know, all sorts of rare earths, uh, you know, and um, so there's a lot of thinking about, well, you know, can we come up with, um, you know, can we come up with new material, new ways of extracting these materials from resources that we've got in abundance here? Uh, can we find new ways of recycling the materials that we've already got here rather than putting them in landfills? Or if you want to think about even, you know, mining landfills, um, you know, or can we come up with alternatives, right? You know, like there, there's some some really smart people out there trying to come up with uh, high performance magnets that don't use rare earths, which almost all of which are processed in China, for example, uh, or, you know, uh, battery chemistries that don't need lithium because uh, we import most of our lithium in this country too. Um, so there, there's a lot of innovation that's being driven by national security considerations. Interesting. Vicky, did you have a point you wanted to add? Yeah, I just wanted to kind of uh, quickly plug the fact that uh, it's sort of striking how many different industrial verticals, let's just say, rely on petrochemical um, byproducts out there. Uh, obviously, you think about uh, like the gas that's going into my vehicle or into like jet planes. Uh, that's obviously a petrochemical product, but um, a lot of that also goes into obviously the plastics that we use. Um, as well as uh, even more downstream kind of things like the pharmaceutical industry. So um, I think another kind of, again, to sort of harp on this point of sustainability and, and uh, thinking about climate, it's, it's also uh, moving away from this petrochemical um, feedstock uh, as, as the source for the materials that we're going to be using in the future. Um, and it's really, it's a really hard challenge because uh, we got very good at using every type of molecule that, you know, comes from the oil that we uh, get from the ground. So 
it, it's going to be quite challenging to, to figure out exactly how to replace um, everything that, that that's in that value chain, but um, we're working on it. So it's great to hear. Steve, I know that you've talked to almost 30 venture capitalists, including financial uh, VCs and corporate VCs. Uh, in those uh, conversations and in what you've learned, who's investing in advanced materials and what are they looking for? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah, so we, we, we kind of did a survey of people that we knew were actively investing in this in this field, um, you know, both financial venture firms as well as corporate VCs. And, and you know, what we found is, I mean, first of all, yeah, they are investing um, and the, the activity is growing pretty quickly, actually. So, you know, from 2018 to 2019, it, it um, more than doubled. So, you know, over a billion dollars a year is going into, uh, you know, startup companies that are focused on materials innovation. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of what they look for, it's actually kind of interesting. I, obviously, the, you know, all VC investors look for certain things, right? You know, strong management teams, large markets, valuable innovations, uh, you know, things like that. Um, but material investors, they, they they have some particular lessons that they've learned over time where about where they, you know, they find the best return opportunities. So, you know, they, they tend to like to invest in companies that are developing sort of specialty materials instead of commodities, um, you know, because specialty materials tend to be, um, you know, uh, high value and, and high margin. Um, and you usually don't need to invest a huge amount of capital in order to produce them at, at, at scale to make a big company. Um, you know, they also, um, tend to like companies that are not so much focused on a material itself, but on an application for an advanced material. Um, you know, most of the value that comes from advanced materials is not from making the stuff, it's from what you can do with the stuff. Um, and that, that's a lesson that I think, you know, venture capital investors have learned over time. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that we saw, was, which was maybe not surprising, I and mean, if you think back to my example about, um, about carbon fibers, right? Uh, you know, it took a long time to figure out what the market where that was and to, to really start to see that market take off. Um, and, you know, that that's common across materials innovations, right? So, um, you know, where, where people come up with a new material and they, they try all sorts of different markets um, and, you know, hopefully one of them eventually takes off. So the investors tend to like to wait until they see that inflection point, um, it, you know, has, has arrived or is about to arrive. Uh, before they really kind of you know jump in with both feet and start funding companies heavily to, to scale up. And when it comes to industries that might uh, be the most active uh, in, in the advanced materials arena, um, I know you, you've unearthed that healthcare, energy, advanced manufacturing, like 3D printing, uh, and bioproducts are are sort of at the top of the list. Is there anything you can say about you know what what do these industries have in common that lend themselves so well to this level of activity when it comes to this space? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think, um, um, you know, one is just, you know, these, these are all industries that, that invest a lot in innovation in general. Um, and you know, a lot of innovation ultimately is materials innovation. Um, so, you know, I guess it's not surprising that these, these are, these are, um, sectors where people are really, you know, trying to, uh, develop and commercialize advanced materials to meet their, to meet their needs. And, you know, they're, they're, they tend to be on kind of the, the cutting edge of performance, um, you know, and, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're always looking to sort of, you know, push the envelope of what they can do. Interesting. And as, as we look across, uh, sort of leaving, leaving industry, let's look at sort of competition in the space, you know, global competition in the space. Uh, are there any actors that come to mind as uh, sort of being uh, equally or, or better uh, positioned in this, in this, in this space? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, historically, um, I mean, you know, the U S and Europe have always been uh, very active in the materials world. Um, 
you know, actually uh, a lot of advanced materials work is done in Japan and Korea. Um, and, and China has really become a big player. Um, you know, I mean, China's a big player just in sort of the general materials value chain of producing, you know, silicon for microchips and, and you know, electrode materials for batteries and rare earth magnets I mentioned earlier, you know, even just steel and plastics and petrochemicals. Um, and they're really investing really heavily. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, a couple of years ago, they, they established a $21 billion, uh, you know, government fund focused on manufacturing. Uh, and they're, they're just producing technical research at an accelerating rate. You know, they're publishing twice as many papers as in material science as American researchers are these days. Um, so uh, I think China is probably the, you know, the, the one to watch. Interesting. That's great. Thanks, Steve. Let's shift gears and talk about um, the future uh, of, of advanced materials. Uh, and before, before we start doing that, I just want to put a shameless plug out to those who are listening uh, to check out the blog post uh, that has been written about advanced materials. You can find it at iqt.org front slash blog. We'll have the link up in the show notes. Uh, you can find a lot of this information as well as other uh, enriching information about this topic in that blog post, uh, including uh, a nod to what I think uh, we should talk about next, which is sort of the future and the hype cycle associated with with advanced materials. Um, so, Vicky, open question to you, perhaps: What oh, crystal ball in your hand? You're looking into the. You're looking into it. You're you're telling us all where are we headed when it comes to advanced materials? And Steve, feel free to chime in after. Yeah. Uh, well. As again, as Steve alluded to, there is a ton of innovation that's happening in a lot of areas around uh, materials development. But yeah, I guess in, in my estimation, um, two kind of areas to watch would be uh, biofabricated materials. Um, and then also, as was kind of mentioned before, um, the application of artificial intelligence and machine learning to the materials discovery and optimization space, which uh, I guess more colloquially we call materials informatics. Um, so those are two big areas where uh, I see a lot of exciting kind of work happening and, and also happy to kind of dive into some of the examples around that. But Steve, yeah. if you... I'd, well, I'd, I'd throw in a third one, which is metamaterials. Yeah. Um, so metamaterials are kind of materials that derive properties from their structure, not their chemistry. So like, you know, a natural example is, is butterfly wings, right? Which get their color from the structure of the, of the, the butterfly wing, not from any kind of chemicals in them. Um, but, you know, I mean, textiles are metamaterials, right? Um, uh, and there's lots of uh, interesting examples where people are doing things like, um, you know, structural lattices, for example, or, or you know, using uh, uh, diffraction gratings to make optics, which is kind of a metamaterial. Um, so, you know, there, there, it's a, an area where I think we see a lot of interesting innovations going on. Interesting. interesting. Vicky, why don't you dig into a couple of the, uh, you know, you talked about biofabrication and biomaterials. You talked about materials informatics. Why don't we dig into that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. So um, by biofabricated materials, uh, I mean kind of the next generation of biologically produced materials. So in some sense, the going beyond the, the traditional biomaterial. And so a lot of these are going to be uh, produced using some sort of engineered microbes, uh, using them as little microscopic factories to produce this thing. So a lot of innovations in synthetic biology, for example, go into this. And um, the really interesting thing is you can produce a lot of custom or specialty chemicals that you can't produce by synthetic or regular means. And you can also make these things using, uh, let's say, non-traditional feedstock. So moving away from this uh, petroleum-based um, feedstock for, for making kind of the 
traditional materials that we have today. And so uh, these are kind of popping up in a lot of different industries. So we have things like uh, alternative structural materials that are made out of bioconcrete. Um, there are mushroom-based bricks and insulation. Um, there's uh, really interesting engineered wood products, which, uh, as Steve mentioned, I totally love. Uh, anything wood-based, I think that's that's a material of the future. Um, but uh, and also some really interesting things that are made using fermentation. Again, whether that's, say, mycelium or these mushroom-based leather products or spider silks. Um, and from from kind of this uh, interest level, this is especially cool because we now are looking at more of this domestic supply of materials, um, which improves supply chain logistics. Again, something that we saw kind of fracture during the COVID-19 experience. Um, but additionally, a lot of these materials can display superior performance um, than kind of their uh, traditional or, or petroleum-based kind of counterparts. And they can also exhibit unique or um, desirable functionalities, you know, whether that's flame resistance or dissolvability. Um, and the other cool piece is that biofabrication oftentimes leverages a lot of the um, informatics or AI processes that are becoming more and more ubiquitous. And sort of to that point, um, materials informatics is, is now this tool that we can use that applies data science and AI methods to better understand uh, the use, selection, development, and discovery of materials. Um, and so this is a tool that we can now use to identify exactly what material class will give us a particular property that we're looking for, or on the flip side, allow us to discover some kind of unknown property of a certain material class. Um, again, thinking about plastics that have electronic properties, just as an example. Um, and so it's, it's still kind of a nascent field, but there are you know, certainly plenty of large companies that are looking at applying this sort of technology to really um, accelerate their development cycles, which again, can, can often take decades. So. Yeah, in, in, in my book, uh, Materials Informatics, another really interesting, uh, you know, thing to look forward to in the advanced materials space. Steve, anything to add? No, I think, I mean, I think Vicky uh, really covered it there. I, you know, materials Informatics is really, a, really an interesting field. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's enabled by, you know, the, the huge increases in computing power and, and uh, data storage, um, you know, and, and the availability of just massive amounts of data. Um, so it's, it's something you really couldn't do, you know, five or 10 years ago. Right. Unless you were ask, like in the lab. <laughs> let me ask you, a, a, as we're discussing this, a, a personal interest of mine comes to mind. I'm generally really interested in, in just food science and food chemistry. Uh, and I'm reminded of uh, a lot of my favorite foods that I consume, I've been consuming over the last few years. A lot of them happen to be made from these companies that have found a way to imitate or emulate uh, animal protein, uh, but by, you know, being completely plant-based. Can either of you comment on... Uh, Am I keying in on something there? Is, there is, is that an example of how materials science and innovation uh, research and development might be playing into into my my stomach, for example? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, I think biofabrication absolutely applies to this food and, and beverage space. Um, yeah, there are plenty of companies out there that are that are thinking about how do we write? How do we make protein independent of the cow, um, either for you know, meat or for dairy, you know, there are companies out there that are producing uh, dairy alternatives that still, you know, resemble 
cow-based milk. It's kind of funny that we even have to call it that because there are now so many of these um, alternative dairy <laughs> products out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, just being able to replicate, you know, the, the taste and the texture, um, you know, of the, these, you know, animal products without, um, you know, without having an animal is a, you know, a huge challenge. And I think it's, it's basically a materials problem. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. Um, I, I I just remember every time I go to a, ca a ca cafe or, or a coffee, I always get I always want to ask the question, "How do you milk an almond?" And uh, it turns out that question might become more ubiquitous than ever, uh, thanks yeah. to material science. Um, Vicky, Steve, we're almost at time. Um, I want to thank you both for your your time, your information, uh, and the conversation today. I certainly found it very informative, and I hope our listeners uh, will as well. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to say as parting words to our audience? materials are everywhere and uh, I, I think that it's high time perhaps that people become a little more cognizant of um, how ubiquitous they are how they affect uh, your your life whether it's you know that phone that's in your hand or your you know the burger that you're about to put into your body um, yeah absolutely a lot of innovation happening on a lot of a lot of different fronts so um, it's it's just a very interesting space to be exploring. Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I, I, you said it well. I have nothing to add. <laughs> In case you'd like to learn more, please find uh, our blog, iqt.org front slash blog, and scroll to the Advanced Materials post to learn about this conversation uh, and also learn more about advanced materials in general. I'd like to again thank our two guests today, Steve and Vicky. Thank you so much. We look forward to talking to you again. To our listeners, thanks for listening. We hope to catch you on another episode of the IQT Podcasts. Thanks and goodbye. Mm -hmm.